0: Um, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you all here uh, together with our honored guests. Uh, I'm Ted Ruger, the new dean of the law school, um, and I'm very pleased to, for, for, to introduce this event, which is the first of what I hope and expect to be many in our Dean's uh, Distinguished Speaker Series organized through our um, International Programs Office and under the tremendous leadership of Rangita Da Silva, who is helping uh, really bring some of the world's foremost uh, uh, leaders and officials and lawyers thinking about uh, human rights and, and uh, trade and, and uh, other crucial national security issues. Um, and um, so it's it's my tremendous pleasure to welcome our, our speaker today, uh, Ivan Simonovic, who's uh, um, Assistant Secretary of Human Rights at the United Nations, as well as having held a number of other positions I'll allude to briefly. Um, he'll speak to us about. One of the most most important subjects we could could think about now or at any time, namely uh, the role of international institutions, nation states, and the legal profession in promoting basic human rights values around the world. Um, As anybody who glances even at the news through whatever media you access the news with, one message you can't miss is that we live in a time of crisis around the world Um, from an economic and human rights perspective. Uh, As we speak today, huge numbers of refugees and migrants uh, around the world are fleeing wars of violence, fleeing persecution, fleeing abject poverty from their home countries, seeking a better life um, somewhere else in places which have their own and our own problems uh, in terms of of operationalizing a true vision of of human rights. Um, We hear about the, the large number of refugees coming from places like Syria, Afghanistan, and Eritrea to Europe um, uh, Secretary, um, Simonovich will speak today about, uh, problems as well in, uh, Africa in areas like, uh, Sudan and Burundi, which have also had tremendous upheaval and, and producing, uh, su- significant human rights, um, uh, issues. Um, our speaker is eminently well-qualified to address this. Um, one aspect of his biography that I think, um, I would like to celebrate, precisely because he breaks the norm and is actually a, a law professor who has left the ivory tower and, and actually is making a difference in the, in the real world. Um, he was um, a longtime uh, law professor and accomplished scholar and teacher at, at the University of Zagreb, where he headed up the Department of Legal Theory as well as served as vice dean. He's been assistant professor at, at Yale Law School um, and has merged his scholarship and theory with. Uh, a number of high-level practicing positions where he is, is, is and has and continues to work to operationalize human rights values in the institutions around us. Um, he is currently Assistant Secretary for Human Rights at the UN. Prior to that, he served as Minister of Justice for Croatia and prior to that, permanent representative to the United States, Nations in New York and Senior Vice President and President of the Economic and Social Council. I could go and go on and on with the CV, but you would like to hear him speak. Um, a particular note, and kind of fusing the um, the legal academic background with the pragmatic realities of working in the world of human rights and in this complex institution of the United Nations, is the way in which um, Secretary Simonovich is working to operationalize certain doctrinal principles, which I think that he'll talk a bit about, like the um, uh, human rights up front idea which is an idea where that the U.N, as an institution is not just a mon- an external monitor of human rights in the countries around the world, but it, in its own organizational forms and functioning, needs to better uh, embody kind of human rights principles in all of its decision-making, not just as a segregated unit or, or subpart. Uh, and I appreciate hearing your thoughts on that. Um, other doctrinal innovations that Secretary Simonovich is, is being involved in implementing. Is one some of you may have heard about the responsibility to protect doctrine, which is a very powerful um, theoretical re- reformulation of the idea of what it means for a state to be sovereign. Not merely sovereignty doesn't j- merely mean the right to exclude others or exercise territorial control, but the doctrine, the responsibility to protect doctrine, would say the state has affirmative obligations to protect those within its borders from and guarantee them freedom from persecution or um, a variety of, of other challenges that they would face. This, too, is something that his office is working to, to operationalize. So Secretary Simonovic, uh, we're very, very happy to have you here. Um, and I, we're looking forward to your talk. And thank you in advance for taking questions from the audience. Um, so if you do have questions, we'll have microphones and the opportunity to speak. Uh, please do silence your cell phones at this time and join me in welcoming our speaker.
1: Uh, Dean Ruger, thank you very much for your kind words. Thank you for your invitations, Uh, Ms. Uh, Rangita uh, De Silva, Associate Dean. Uh, I think that your friendship and cooperation uh, with uh, my wife, uh, who is uh, Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women has also uh, contributed uh, to establishing uh, links uh, with uh, the Penn Law. I really am delighted to be here and uh, it's not courtesy that I am ready uh, to answer your questions. In fact, uh, I intend to have a relatively short presentation and then offer you a la carte instead of fixed menu. (laughs) But definitely uh, before that I uh, would like uh, to raise uh, a couple of questions. Uh, First of all, let me give a broader framework uh, for human rights in the United Nations. Uh, We consider that United Nations are built on three pillars and it's uh, security, development, and human rights. It was uh, Kofi Annan uh, who once said, uh, there is no peace without development. There is no development without peace. And there is neither of the two without human rights. Let uh, Let me elaborate a little bit on that. There is no peace without development. It can be empirically (coughs) proved. Uh, If you do a conflict analysis, you will see that uh, especially when internal conflicts are concerned, internal instabilities, the years of lack of development, of bad governance, of corruption, significantly increase the likelihood of conflict. now let us move uh, to uh, the other statement, uh, that there is no development without peace. Uh, it's well known that each conflict uh, leads to destruction, destruction of uh, infrastructure, of housing, uh, but it's less visible that it uh, a part of uh, damnum emergens in sense of civil law, it implies also lucrum cesans, uh, the uh, lack of uh, realization of opportunities uh, that societies could have. For example, uh, such an indirect loss uh, that is less visible. Are damages uh, to education uh, during uh, the uh, conflicts and uh, in, on a long term, uh, societies pay that damage as well? And let us now come uh, to the last element of the statement uh, that there is neither peace nor development without human rights. Recently, uh, during uh, the summit uh, uh, just held uh, a week ago uh, at uh, the margin of uh, the 70th uh, General Assembly, uh, uh, there was uh, uh, a, a, an instrument adopted called uh, Sustainable Development Goals as declaration and plan of action. and. Uh, When I compare this with so-called millennium development goals, one of the greatest differences is uh, the role that is assigned to human rights in the area of development. It is quite explicit that, uh, for example, discrimination, discrimination of women, uh, uh, prohibiting uh, access uh, to the workforce, Uh, and discrimination uh, of people based on uh, their religion, ethnicity, or any other attribute has not only uh, very harmful uh, social and political consequences, but also economic ones. Uh, Let me now move uh, to the center uh, of my presentation today, and it's the relationship between human rights, peace, and security. There is a very tight interrelationship between human rights and uh, all stages of a conflict. Uh, so let us start with conflict in making. Uh, quite often, it is violation of human rights uh, that are root causes of conflict. Uh, we could use numerous examples. Uh, for me, uh, a good example is the beginning of the Arab Spring. The picture that, for me, is the essence of the Arab Spring is the picture of a protester carrying a banner with a couple of very simple words, saying, I am a man. Uh, This simple message says, for me, all, a part of it uh, being uh, not gender neutral, but if we uh, forget about this dimension, what does that mean, I am a man? It means I am a man, but I'm not being treated like a man. My rights are not being respected. I am a man and I claim my rights. I claim my right uh, to have opportunity To work, to have a fair share of of, uh, national uh, assets. Uh, I have a right for my child to get education. I have a right to have access to justice. I have a right to select my own political leadership. I have a right to medical care without the need to pay a bribe. And I have nothing. And this denies me from my rights as a man. And I will raise up, and if necessary, I will fight. I will will get killed in that fight if I uh, continue uh, to be in a situation that my rights are being denied. But it's not only Arab Spring. Uh, uh, Dean mentioned uh, Ukraine. Maidan uh, was exactly that. Maidan was a reaction uh, to deprivation of human rights. Uh, Maidan first started uh, as a student uh, and young, educated people protest, because uh, president at the time, uh, uh, based on his own political calculation, uh, decided uh, to divert uh, from uh, uh, Ukraine's desire uh, to go in the direction of joining uh, the european union then you had uh, protests but they were not massive it was only younger intellectuals participating uh, during those protests but it was met by brutal police force by uh, beatings by humiliation and that has that those violations uh, of rights of people committed by security forces have ignited uh, the real massive uh, serious uh, Maidan. Now, this is uh, also something that we can see uh, around the world as conflicts in making. Uh, they do not yet represent uh, a, a threats to international peace and security, but tomorrow may, if left unaddressed. For example, the situation in Burundi right now is something where violations of human rights are threatening uh, to explode into uh, a a serious civil war, but then with uh, potential spillovers uh, to Rwanda, to DRC, Uganda, and so on. Uh, Something similar can be seen in DRC, both in Burundi and DRC. The problem is disrespect of civil and political rights of citizens and uh, having uh, presidents that insist, that insist on uh, their terms in office uh, that are unconstitutional. Now, uh, let me now say something on human rights during the conflict. During the conflict, of course, uh, there are numerous violations of uh, international humanitarian law, of international uh, human rights law, and uh, something uh, that my uh, Office office of High Commissioner for Human Rights, or let's call it just Human Rights Office does, is that we try to monitor and report on human rights violations, for example in Afghanistan we started early on with casualty reporting. It's not just a body count. It's uh, establishing that civilians are being killed, establishing who is responsible for being, uh, uh, who, who, who is responsible for their killing. And I can tell you from personal experience, uh, even hardcore human rights violators such as Taliban in Afghanistan are not immune from uh, criticism based on facts uh, related uh, to uh, killings of civilians. I myself participated in talks uh, with Taliban on issues uh, of killings of civilians, but also warning them about command responsibility for these acts, command responsibility in sense not only for orders given, but for not preventing and for not banishing. Uh, So, that monitoring and reporting is a powerful advocacy tool. I, myself, uh, was an opportunity uh, to talk to, at a time, President of Cote d'Ivoire, Ouattara, when he was uh, under protection of uh, United Nations in Golf Hotel when President uh, Gbagbo did not want uh, uh, to leave uh, the office, although Ouattara was elected. And when uh, up to that moment, only uh, Gbagbo and his supporters were involved in uh, human rights violations, violations of international humanitarian law. But uh, Watara's supporters were coming from the north, and I visited the site of first killings Uh, of uh, Watara supporters and I was able to go to him and to tell him that command responsibility from now on will be applied to him as well. Uh, The same day he went to national television and delivered a powerful speech that crimes are crimes and no matter of the perpetrator they should uh, be punished. Similar conversations I had in uh, uh, South Sudan with uh, President Kiir and his rival Riek Machar. And finally, in post-conflict period, the relationship uh, with human rights and peace and security is also essential. Uh, in every conflict, you have, almost in every conflict, winning and losing side, and we need uh, some sort of uh, justice. Justice, yes, but retaliation, no. If justice is transformed into a victor's justice, if it ends up that only uh, losing side, uh, side and its uh, representatives are being prosecuted, we are just uh, uh, having not uh, a sustainable peace but we are preparing uh, for another cycle of conflict. Now, uh, let me now uh, uh, briefly uh, mention uh, something about uh, recognition of the importance of human rights uh, for peace and security. Uh, the Security Council has, in its work, recognized the importance of human rights uh, through uh, a couple of uh, indicators. Uh, first of all, there is practically no resolution establishing uh, new mandates of the Security Council, uh, uh, country mandates, without uh, strong human rights provisions, including sometimes provisions on protection of civilians, on responsibility to protect, and uh, Other indicator is that when uh, when configuring future missions, they almost always have human rights component, and uh, the number of staff in human rights components is increasing, uh, and we can follow that, uh, trend for years. In implementation of human rights mandates, uh, uh, there is much more robustness in protection of civilians. And I'll give you uh, an example that I'm uh, personally familiar with. Uh, in 1993, in Srebrenica, I know our interpreter, UN interpreter there, who had his family in front of uh, our camp, and uh, we didn't let civilians in our camp, including, including immediate family of our own staff member. He was a UN staff member, and he couldn't get uh, his uh, family in, and they were all slaughtered just in front of our border of our camp. So has anything changed? I know that uh, there are many instances where UN does a poor job that we could and we should do more and better. But on the other hand, when I see what we have done in South Sudan, I see that we are moving forward. Uh, we were facing a situation that uh, the conflict between uh, ethnic groups, between Dinka and Nuer, was escalating. There was uh, a manhunt against uh, ethnically identifiable group that was spreading around the country. This time, we opened gates of our camps. And at the moment, we are hosting 200,000 people uh, on our compounds. They were never meant to host uh, uh, people and to provide for them safe haven. I visited Bor, Uh, where we didn't have uh, more than one liter of water per day during the heat uh, for each resident of our camp. I visited uh, Ventil. I've seen people uh, who underwent amputations without even sedative, not to speak of uh, anesthesia. And uh, similar examples of uh, horrific situation on our UN compounds. However, uh, I would estimate that we have saved tens of thousands of lives. Sometimes we paid the price. Sometimes sometimes we were not efficient. Sometimes some people were dragged from our camps and killed. Sometimes uh, our camps were overrun and peacekeepers were killed as well as uh, protected protected persons now something that you will like we had an incident in Bentu when a minister accompanied by soldiers wanted to enter the camp and take some people out and a uh, uh, person in charge our our uh, regional head uh, un head uh, has said that he does not accept, and they they just uh, pointed guns and say uh, said that they would start shooting uh, at u n personnel if we do not do it and uh, he responded, Try and see what happens. Uh, that guy is American an n- NYPD uh, cop who was uh, who was borrowed to the United Nations. Now, let me me say uh, uh, something uh, on uh, what Dean has mentioned uh, as new development, new uh, protection concepts. And uh, this is uh, something uh, that the Secretary General was systematically introducing. And uh, if you promise not to quote me, I'll I'll tell you something we discussed at our retreat of senior advisors this year. We were discussing Secretary General's legacy. And one senior advisor said, well, who could have guessed that a 70 years old Asian would be a champion of empowerment of women and human rights? And uh, we all laughed, uh, but it's true. Uh, uh, Ban Ki-moon has done a lot for empowerment of women and uh, for uh, human rights. I'll mention just very briefly, and then I can elaborate uh, if you are interested uh, during the discussion, three major human rights initiatives uh, uh, that uh, uh, have been to quite an extent now put in place, but still has, have to be stabilized in order to be sure that they are sustainable and no matter of new secretary general uh, that they stay influential. First of them is human rights due diligence policy. So uh, it's uh, a complicated story, but I'll make it very short. Uh, uh, and if you want, we can discuss it further. The whole idea is that UN cannot be supporting non-UN security forces if there is a likelihood that those forces will be involved in grave human rights violations. Uh, So, uh, to put it uh, simpler, Uh, We cannot support, meaning we cannot be training, we cannot be uh, housing, we cannot be feeding, we cannot be logistically supporting, transporting, we cannot provide uh, uh, supporting in sense of fighting together to uh, non-UN security forces, meaning either regional forces or uh, uh, national forces that are likely to commit uh, human rights violations. The idea is not to cut the list of non-UN security forces shorter, but to influence their behavior. So if we have a situation that we think it's likely that uh, some forces may be making human rights violations, we do not just uh, uh, reject uh, their request for support. We say, listen, we would really want to support you However, you must, uh, uh, must, together with us, develop some mitigating measures. For example, provide uh, uh, your soldiers with human rights training. You must replace your commanding officers who do not have a clean human rights record. And I can give you practical examples how we were practicing uh, human rights due diligence in the field. Second concept is uh, human rights screening. And it was introduced, believe it or not, on an experimental uh, pilot base uh, very recently. And it's a guarantee that we will not have under the UN flag people who have had uh, grave human rights violations in their past. Uh, So when anyone now wants to join United Nations, you want to join United Nations as a UN civilian staff, you will have to sign an affidavit saying that you were never involved in human rights violations. When uh, a a, a member state is sending peacekeepers, uh, they must guarantee by signature uh, uh, of the high level of the Ministry of Defense or somebody else that no one in that contingent has been involved in human rights violations in his previous career. Well, uh, will it still happen that there are some people uh, uh, who were involved and their government did not or they individually did not admit? Of course, yes. Uh, So far, we are doing human rights screening only for top civilian and military positions. But hopefully, we will expand that and uh, we will be doing random checks ensuring that people uh, who uh, uh, work for the United Nations have a a human rights uh, background, a clean human rights background. Uh, Now, let me say finally something on uh, human rights up front uh, that has uh, been mentioned. Uh, The whole idea is uh, that uh, mass atrocities do not come out of blue. That there are early indicators of potentially uh, 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 development of the crisis and uh, atrocities uh, that may be coming. And uh, one of the best indicators, uh, the canary in the coal mine, are human rights. Human rights violations of specific sort Human rights violations against representatives of certain minorities, of certain ethnic groups, religious groups, are early signs uh, of uh, the potential escalation uh, of uh, mass atrocities. So what to do? Uh, Traditionally, UN was having uh, a culture of reaction. Not of proactive activities. The whole idea is when we notice that there are some characteristic human rights violations, we should first be better in gathering information and then be better in analyzing uh, those information and using them as early warning. And then finally, we must act. We must act uh, in uh, various possible ways. We can be discussing it with the member state and its authorities, what sort of action is needed to prevent deterioration of situation. We can be talking to regional uh, organizations that can be helpful in this regard. And if necessary, we can bring the case before the Security Council. And in doing that, we should not be doing something that previously uh, we were doing quite often, and it's uh, uh, saying to the Security Council what they want to hear. Instead of that, we need to pass to them what they need to know to do their duty, which sometimes is unpleasant, and uh, especially it can be also politically sensitive, because we are not speaking about countries that are already in conflict but about countries where human rights violations are indicators of uh, the potential conflict. Uh, And of course, that uh, leads us uh, to the concept of responsibility to protect. Uh, Responsibility to protect, basically, just as Dean pointed out, is related to state sovereignty. But the whole idea is that state sovereignty is not only prerogative, it's also an obligation of a state to protect citizens that are on certain territory uh, and in certain jurisdiction, including protection of their human rights. So uh, also, speaking of pillars, uh, the theory of responsibility to protect has three pillars. First pillar is that state itself is responsible for human rights of uh, people on their territory and of well-being of uh, those people. If state is not capable of protecting uh, uh, their citizens from grave human rights violations, from grave uh, humanitarian law violations, then it's the duty of other states to help those states through technical capacity building, through uh, financial assistance, to help them to do that. But in case uh, that it's not uh, a matter of lack of capacity but lack of goodwill, then it's responsibility of international community to protect human rights of people, even if necessary, uh, against uh, the state, their state uh, that is uh, a uh, human rights uh, violator. Of course we are now here speaking only about grave uh, human rights violations and uh, 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 it's is questionable when is such intervention uh, uh, legal, what uh, should be the trigger of such an intervention. Uh, That intervention uh, could take different forms. It could take form of, for example, sanctions against that state, in the sense of smart sanctions, for example, Uh, travel ban for leadership, uh, frozen their accounts in the foreign banks, but it can be also economic sanctions or it can be use of force. Uh, Current uh, doctrinal debate is uh, uh, since 2005 that uh, responsibility to protect should be triggered by uh, the Security Council uh, resolution. So, uh, These are my initial remarks, and I stand ready to discuss together with you either something uh, that is covered uh, by issue that I have raised, but if you are interested in something else related to United Nations and human rights, I would be delighted. Thank you.
0: Responsibility of your of your role and just the, the range of issues you deal with and, and how many parts of the world um, these are crucial. Um, I want to involve uh, all of you in, in comments and questions. There are two microphones there, which if you raise your hand, uh, we will um, we have yes. Yeah, so if Do you raise you? your hand, we'll make sure that a, a microphone gets to you. I'll I'll ask one initial question. Is you a theme of, of one theme that you put on in a few different ways was taking a more proactive uh, posture towards ensuring human rights security, not not waiting for the problem or the atrocity to happen. And you mentioned the screening and then some other st- structural changes. You also mentioned kind of training, training uh, both uh, domestic security forces and UN employees in uh, to to avoid that. And can you say a bit more of that? What's the both the philosophy of the notion that you would be able to train sure. somebody, and and what are some specific ways that you train people to sure. human uh, You know, uh, uh,
1: when I joined the United Nations, uh, I was shocked uh, to find out that not even uh, in Human Rights Office, uh, you are not provided human rights training. Uh, you are expected to know it uh, by yourself. And uh, in fact, not even in the United Nations, uh, all all, uh, United Nations staff is not informed about human rights. Uh, I think that uh, we will, for the first time in the history of the United Nations, in the beginning of uh, 2016, as a part of human rights up front, uh, we will uh, have an obligatory human rights uh, electronic training uh, for all United Nations staff, so you will not be able anymore to work for the United Nations without knowing basics about human rights. It was so funny, we all knew, we all had to know something about security basics and you couldn't work, but about human rights, well, uh, uh, it's uh, a new development. now. Uh, The whole idea is, uh, and uh, I think it's fundamental, that uh, human rights in the United Nations system should not be uh, compartmentalized. That it's not, human rights are not something that Human Rights Office does. But it's core mandate and activity of the United Nations. So every uh, uh, UN staff member, every peacekeeper has, to be aware of uh, human rights responsibilities. Uh, For the first time uh, in 2015, uh, resident coordinators, they are uh, are heading UN teams uh, in uh, various countries, are being selected and appraised also based on their commitment and achievements uh, in human rights area. Concerning uh, human rights uh, and uh, uh, trainings uh, of security forces, I think it's uh, uh, extremely important. Uh, And I'll tell you anecdote. Uh, 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 I was meeting an elderly uh, Iraqi general, security general. He was working uh, on top posts in intelligence, in uh, uh, internal affairs as well as in military. And he was working uh, for different regimes. And I have no doubts that he was involved in very nasty things in his past. And I was trying to convince him about the importance of human rights, human rights training. uh, uh, And he was looking at me and said, listen, It's too late for me. I have been raised in different spirit, in spirit of obligations and not rights. But when I listen to you, I realize that although I cannot fully understand that, that those human rights are something that I would like to have for my grandchildren. I I will be open for cooperation. So quite often, you, you have uh, that uh, situation that people who want good for future generations in their country are willing to get involved in human rights area, although not fully understanding the concept because of uh, historic circumstances in which they live. Um, I
0: see you? Yes, I can. Yes. Yes.
2: Next month, we celebrate. Oh, OK. Next month, we celebrate the 70th
1: anniversary of the beginning of the Nuremberg trial of major war criminals. To what extent does your job involve review of the principles of Nuremberg in the human rights area? I'm talking about the prohibition against war crimes, crimes against the peace, conspiracy, and so forth. Thank you. Uh, Human Rights Office is not directly involved in setting up uh, international tribunals, hybrid tribunals, but we are involved in supporting uh, processes of uh, transitional justice. Transitional justice usually has a, a couple of elements. Uh, first of all, it's uh, a recognition that uh, something was wrong. It's truth-seeking. Secondly, a uh, second element of transitional uh, 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 justice is compensations to the victims. Uh, they, those uh, remedies for victims can be either Uh, material or recognition uh, of uh, of what has happened to them. They can be individual, they can be collective. Uh, Third element of transitional justice is justice itself. And it means uh, proceedings against uh, people who were involved in grave human rights violations, whether we speak about genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, those four are called so-called international crimes. And five uh, and the last fourth element is an element of non-repetition, and it's something on which victims always insist. Set up a system that this, what happened to me, what happened to my family never repeats. So we are not directly involved in setting up uh, tribunals. Uh, but we are supporting uh, national efforts to establish transitional justice mechanisms. Uh, what we also do is we are quite often involved in uh, fact finding. So, fact finding is uh, the activity aimed at establishing human rights violations. We do not have uh, the threshold that would uh, make our evidence uh, submittable uh, uh, in the court of law. So we we do not have such a high threshold, but we uh, try to identify violations that have happened and we publicly report on them. And then we request that uh, further activities, including setting up of hybrid tribunals or something, is done in order to ensure that there is uh, accountability. Uh, Just a a small addition, Uh, sometimes uh, we do our own fact-finding and sometimes uh, there are some independent commissions of inquiry set up which are consisting of independent experts and we are providing services uh, to such independent uh, commissions of inquiry.
2: Hi, uh,
0: thanks for being here. Um, I guess so. My question is I know that uh, your office has reported on some of the human rights violations that have taken place by the U.S., both domestically and uh, abroad. And I'm curious that in light of this tragedy that happened on Saturday with the MSF bombing uh, attack in Kunduz, Af- Afghanistan, do you think that your office will you know, publicly condemn that action or you know, support its own independent investigation of what took place? You know, because I know the, the NSF, they're trying to declare this as you know, war crime itself. So I'm curious as your thoughts on that, since it's so current. Uh,
1: Kundu's case is a particularly disturbing one. And I believe that it's uh, too big. For us, and I think that it uh, does require impartial, independent uh, investigation, uh, which means setting up, setting up uh, a commission of inquiry. Uh, why do I think that? Uh, because, uh, uh, and I, I, I will just uh, uh, relay now, not to our own findings, but. to to statements that are in public domain. Uh, First of all, it was a a hospital that was targeted. Secondly, 30 minutes after the information that hospital uh, has been targeted, uh, hospital continued to be targeted, which is particularly disturbing. Uh, uh, Thirdly, uh, Afghan authorities uh, stated that hospital has been targeted because there were some Taliban elements uh, 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 involved in attacks from that hospital. So all that is extremely disturbing and uh, requests uh, an inquiry. Uh, International inquiry, independent and impartial inquiry. Uh, uh, So far U.S. authorities has acknowledged that they were involved in that area. Uh, but never mentioning that hospital has been a target uh, but that uh, it's a possible case of collateral damage. Well, it has to be seen whether it was a a decision to bomb hospital uh, or it was a case of collateral damage. In case of collateral damage, was there any recklessness? But this case will not go away, and I think it's best for everyone to have that uh, investigation. And of course, that if there is any responsibility, either for recklessness or for the decision uh, to target hospital, that it is an individual responsibility. Otherwise, it's already having a negative impact on the ground.
0: Hi, I just wanted to know what your office uh, relationship is, working relationship with groups like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and similar groups. Uh, how do you work with them? Is it a formal thing? Is it informal? How does that go down?
1: Uh, we, we work with them a lot, both formally and informally. Uh, for example, uh, wherever I go uh, for a mission, I have first meeting in New York uh, with uh, a couple of uh, most relevant international non governmental organizations. Uh, And then I meet their representatives on the ground. Uh, And uh, uh, usually they also uh, ask for debriefing uh, when I return about uh, my findings. So cooperation is very close. Uh, What would be the difference? in the way uh, uh, that we approach things. Uh, I think that uh, international NGOs can be faster than us. They can be faster because uh, their threshold of evidence, their method of verification is less demanding. So if they are 80% sure that something happened, they can speak up. We need to do more verification. On the other hand, Our uh, competitive edge is that we have direct access to the, for example, Security Council. And uh, we can address Security Council uh, with our concerns. So I don't think that we are competing, uh, but that we are a part of the same human rights team uh, and we can best play together if we are uh, using our comparative advantages.
2: Thank you for your wonderful talk. Uh, my question is: I was watching an interview of yours where you said the situation in Central African Republic is a potential threat of genocide, but not yet an immediate danger of genocide. My, so I lead that to: What are the implications of such a situation for the doctrine of R two P? Can the doctrine of R two P address such a preemptive situation? And if not, then What can the United Nations and the global community do to prevent such a situation from becoming into a danger and ultimately into a genocide?
1: Uh, I visited uh, Central African Republic at a very early stage of the conflict uh, when uh, Seleka were in power. So Seleka were at the time uh, successfully defeating national army and uh, taking control, and uh, being involved in illegal taxation, in uh, plundering, in raping, in killing uh, of civilians, and it already had uh, some both ethnic and religious dimension, and at the time. I uh, met with religious leaders, uh, both mass Muslim and Christian. And uh, uh, what is striking is that Muslims, Muslim leaders were aware that such behavior of celibate, uh will lead to retaliation in second phase. So it was a, a, a tragedy in making. Now, what did... Uh, Security Council do what the United Nations do. Uh, There was uh, a peace mission uh, established in uh, the Central African Republic. It took some time. It was first not UN mission, but there were some African member states sending their troops. Uh, It took too long time. Uh, Many mistakes were made, uh, and many uh, very, hard dilemmas were faced. For example, at the time uh, when there was, uh, when Pendulum shifted to the other side, when there was a retaliation on uh, so-called uh, 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 Balaka uh, uh, against uh, Muslim populations, including uh, targeting uh, civilians, we were in a very difficult dilemma whether to help to remove uh, Muslim population out of out of dangerous zones where they were exposed to danger, and it's very tricky because doing that you are also contributing to ethnic cleansing, and that's exactly what Balaka wanted. They wanted to get rid of civilian Muslim populations in in, in those areas, and uh, well, uh, we were. Deciding on a case-by-case basis, if we were in a situation uh, that we didn't have sufficient forces to be able to protect uh, Muslim population at the time, to stay where they are, we involved in evacuations. Wherever we could, we tried to establish a situation for them uh, to protect them and to stay there. Now, unfortunately, you are right that once again we are having an escalation in the Central African Republic. I hope that now we have a sufficient number of troops uh, on the ground and that we will be able to provide uh, protection of civilians. Uh, yes, thank
2: you. Um, there have been various instances in where uh, peacekeeping missions caused civilian harm, not maybe
1: not directly, but for instance, the compensation claims of the Haiti cholera clay and Um, Sabrenica. um One could argue that by the UN invoking its immunity, they effectively foreclose a victim's rights to
2: an effective remedy and the right to be heard. Do you think with the new recognition of the Secretary General to have human rights cutting across all um, organizations of the UN, that that this could also lead to being a tool for victims um, in claiming their compensation?
1: I think you are completely right. Uh, When speaking about human rights advancements in sense of human rights due diligence policy, screening policy human rights have prompt uh, missing piece of a puzzle is uh, increasing accountability of peacekeepers themselves. Uh, uh, it's, it could be related uh, to cholera. I think that the uh, UN's response in this respect wasn't uh, a good one. Uh, I think that emphasis uh, should be much more victim-centered not just a defending organization. Uh, uh, but there are also a number of less visible cases of, for example, sexual violence and abuses committed either by peacekeepers uh, or UN civilian staff. And uh, those are horrible things. Uh, it's not just cases of classical rapes, but there are cases like that. But you also have uh, situations when, uh, when people in need are being exploited and uh, that sex is traded by women or children for just uh, a ration of food. And uh, are we good in addressing uh, these things? Not good enough. I think, I think uh, uh, what should be an improvement Uh, What we do is uh, that we, uh, uh, in in this situation, we do not have real legal instruments. This is first. And secondly, there is no enough frankness and determination to address this. Uh, So uh, uh, frankness and determination means uh, that we still have some cases of cover-up, do not rock the boat. uh, but also there isn't adequate legal framework. The principle is that uh, law follows the force, meaning uh, that if you have national contingent in certain country, uh, neither United Nations nor uh, uh, national authorities of recipient state can prosecute a person who, for example, uh, a, a, was involved in rape, in Haiti. So what you do as United Nations is that you call uh, the uh, 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 national government of uh, a member of contingent, we had a case of, for example, uh, Uruguay contingent, uh, (coughs) and ask them to conduct investigation. I mentioned Uruguay case because government of Uruguay has done a decent job. They really came and they prosecuted uh, responsible person, but many governments simply do not do it. They prefer to uh, withdraw their forces. We can kick them out. But then we cannot control uh, criminal proceedings. What I think should be changed, uh, we cannot change the principle that law follows the force. What we can do is that we could insert into a memoranda. There are always memoranda between United Nations and troop-contributing countries we could insert provisions that uh, a, a, a country who is contributing true is uh, accepting that United Nations or national uh, recipient authorities uh, could, uh, could uh, take necessary measures to preserve <coughs> evidence, and that they accept that such an evidence will be submittable in the court of law of uh, the troop-contributing country, to uh, make it uh, practical that United Nations, because we have, have, uh, uh, as part of our peacekeeping forces, we have uh, a lot of police, some of them having uh, experience. Uh, We can interview witnesses, we can preserve forensic evidence, And, uh, well, it takes some time for national uh, police officers from uh, the troop-contributing country to come. And they come in some seven days, 10 days. Well, then we present them with evidence. We present them with a list of witnesses, with their statements, with forensic evidence. It's still responsibility of uh, government of the troop-contributing country to handle criminal proceedings. But then uh, it's much more difficult for them to avoid responsibility because uh, it's quite obvious that crime has taken place and there is evidence of the crime. So we can do much more in sense of naming and shaming such country or to exclude uh, such a country from a list of tri- contributing countries. So I'm uh, campaigning uh, for them to be included in the future.
2: Mr. Simonovic, you shared with us the fact that um, Secretary Ban Ki-moon's legacy will be defined by what he has done for women's empowerment. And I do share that sentiment with you and your colleagues. But at the same time, 30 years after Security Council Resolution 1325, which asked for women's leadership in peace negotiations. only 7% on average, women constitute only 7% of peacemaking treaty bodies and delegations across the world. And in the 100 or more peace treaties that have been forged after the end of the, uh, the Cold War, women have constituted less than 2% of those at the table in peacemaking. And not a single woman has led, um, has led a peacemaking delegation. So given that track record, the UN really does not and cannot um, claim the mantle of leadership in peacemaking as far as women's leadership is concerned.
1: I agree with you. Uh, I think that there is a long way to go in this area. And it's not just a question of equality. It's a question of efficiency. I uh, have talked to women in all conflict situations and discussed with them uh, the importance of their uh, role. Women have a lot to offer in sense of such negotiations. When I compare the attitude of women, it is much more future-oriented uh, as custodians of life on the planet of Earth. Uh, women are natural, uh, uh, core uh, component of these negotiations of every conflict. Uh, I do think uh, That uh, speaking of Secretary General, uh, that he definitely has changed uh, the number of uh, women on uh, senior advisors' posts. Uh, So far, uh, the most uh, resilient enclave of uh, discrimination against women have been peace negotiations. However, He has appointed now repeatedly uh, in some very uh, uh, difficult country situations, women as uh, special representative of Secretary General. Hilda Johnson in South Sudan is uh, replaced by Margaret Leuk, another woman in South Sudan. Uh, In uh, many other countries, uh, we had women Representing United Nations in tough situations, uh, we had a female uh, commanders recently of uh, the police force. We are having first first female commanders, uh, field commanders of uh, the, the UN peacekeepers. Still, uh, the issue of uh, female uh, UN mediators and special envoys is lacking. But it's a work in progress, I believe, that uh, uh, in the foreseeable future, we shall be changing that ratio.
0: Secretary Simonovic, uh, I want to thank you for coming. It's, it's remarkable listening to you, how your role both uses and, and your, what you shared with us, both uses the, the very kind of high-level conceptual aspiration toward human rights, but also a really rich account of institutional dynamics and practices that you're working on within the UN and within some of the states you work with to, to implement those. And I think, for instance, when you were talking about you, you, the way you view your office's role vis-a-vis the Security Council as giving an independent voice resonates deeply with some of our own constitutional debates about, say, what the uh, Attorney General's role or the White House counsel's role is in giving the executive branch advice. Uh, it's even applicable to kind of company general counsel or compliance and excuse-like and as such, I think connects people with, with the role of lawyers uh, in institutions around the world. So it's uh, it's really been a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Thank you, Rangita uh, for for helping to bring bring this event together, and we really appreciate having you. Here.